All righty. Thank you. That was a good special offertory. It was good. Um, greetings again to everyone. Uh, good morning, and um, <clears throat> thankful that you are all here. Um, uh, what we're going to do this morning is uh, different than what is typically done in a morning service here. Uh, typically, we have an expositional homily through a passage of Scripture, normally going through a book of the Bible, and a uh, pastor works through uh, verse by verse. Um, today, um, as I have written out in the bit of a lesson plan that we got last, uh, back in September, uh, what I want to do today is look at defending the Scriptures and giving us a better understanding of the authority of the Bible uh, that we have. And so uh, we're going to look at a few verses here this morning. Uh, we're going to read several verses uh, from the scriptures. Um, but what I want to do with the majority, uh, the majority chunk of our time today is look and see how God has indeed inspired and given us his word. Uh, that I believe we all would affirm uh, for the most part here today, I would assume. Um, but without getting into the exegetical side of unpacking Second uh, Timothy um, 3, 16 and 17 and, and some of these other passages of Scripture and, and digging into what the apostles themselves wrote and said and, and what it means for the uh, preservation, inspiration, uh, infallibility of the Word of God, uh, what I want to do is uh, somewhat take that as an assumption that we agree on these verses that we'll read in a moment and then unpack how we have seen that truthfulness come to light throughout history. How is it that you and I, and maybe you've never thought about this, but how is it that you and I, the Bible that you have today, uh, how did this come to be? Did, did your binded Bible drop out of heaven? Was it delivered by an angel to the Apostle Paul? You know, how did that process take place? The process that we believe of God divinely inspiring and then preserving his word up to today. And so this is in line with the study we have been doing in understanding um, other worldviews, other perspectives, and how we can give a proper and truthful and logical defense of the Christian faith and our belief. And so this is in line with that. So I want to open up with a word of prayer, uh, and then we will read several verses, just making some brief comments. And then I want to get into a bit of that uh, the historical proof for these exegetical claims that we have. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Again, Father, we come before you and we thank you for today. We thank you for your graciousness in our lives and giving us the good news of the gospel that we have heard. And even as we have sang about um, today, uh, we praise you for that. Lord, we pray that this time again would be profitable to uh, your church here. Um, Lord, that we would uh, again just have a greater love and understanding for your word. Lord, help us that we would not take for granted the, the scriptures in which we have been given. Uh, Father, we all have busy lives. We all are <clears throat> running around uh, with many things on the agenda. Uh, but Father, the truthfulness of your word, the power of your word, the process in which the word has been uh, given to us even through the loss of many lives, Lord, we pray that we would never take for granted this wonderful book that has been given to us by you, by our creator. And so, Father, I just pray that uh, this time would foster a greater love for your word and a greater love to know you, and that it would be a blessing to your church here. And so, God, we ask and pray that that would happen today, that you would be glorified. And we pray this all in your son's name. Amen. 
Again, <clears throat> I'll ask your forgiveness as I will probably take several sips of water and um, as, uh, as I speak here today. So um, if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. We're going to look at briefly 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. <clears throat> of course, a very well-known passage of Scripture, um, <clears throat> especially on this topic. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. A very common passage of scripture when we are beginning to think about the word of God, the scriptures that have been given to us. Um, are they the work of man? Does God have any work when it comes to the process of giving us the Bible, of course, we as, uh, again, little o orthodox Christians believe that all scripture is indeed given by the inspiration of God. That God has breathed out, that God has in some way given us the words in which we have today. <clears throat> so we would affirm with the Apostle Paul that yes, all scripture, the scriptures that we have are indeed inspired by God. God is the one who has given them to us. Um, and so, again, today, the point is not to get into an exegetical study of each one of these passages of Scripture, but rather to briefly look at them, affirm them, and then move on into how these, this has happened throughout history. <clears throat> the second passage I want us to look at is 2 Peter 1, 21. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. There's four verses in total that we'll, again, give brief, uh, brief attention to. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. <clears throat> and here the Apostle Peter says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The prophecy referring to uh, the time of the Old Testament and the prophets that were speaking on behalf of God uh, Peter says that this was not merely the doing of a man, men speaking as, hey, listen, let's say it the Lord, and this is what I feel like telling you, but rather the Apostle Peter saying that these men who spoke, who wrote, did so on behalf of God, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. And so that this inspiration of God that has been uh, this inspiration of the scriptures done by God was done not just by, you know, God snapping his fingers and like there was creation, uh, but rather it was God working through men. And so this is what Peter affirms. Uh, the, second, uh, the third verse that we will look at is Matthew 5.18. Matthew 5.18. <clears throat> and here we have seen the thoughts of the Apostle Paul, we have seen the thoughts of the Apostle Peter, and now moving on to our Savior Jesus. Here in Matthew 5.18, Jesus, in a discussion that he is having, he says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle, shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. And so, on some level here, Jesus is affirming that everything that has been written in the law will be fulfilled. And so uh, Jesus appears to have a high value of the authority of Scripture. And lastly, uh, again, we could look at the, even the hermeneutics and the exposition of Jesus in Luke 24, 27. Luke 24, 
Verse 27, where again we see the resurrected Lord walking and talking with some disciples. And there in Luke 24, 27, it says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so Jesus himself, using the Old Testament, the Bible of the early church, and using those scriptures to point to himself, showing that, yes, these are indeed true, and they were indeed pointing to me. And so we see an affirmation from the Apostle Paul, from the Apostle Peter, and from Jesus himself to this idea that the scriptures, the Bible, as you and I would say, um, are not just a man-made book, uh, is not just a compilation of good ideas, good thoughts from some smart and godly men throughout time, but rather that the scriptures which we have today are indeed inspired, given to us by God, and that God did that through the process of using men to write down that which he desired them to do. And so, again, uh, we could spend an hour on each one of those verses and we could dive deeper into each one of those texts and understanding better. Uh, And that would be a very, very profitable use of our time. And what is uh, quite honestly the most important thing that we do as we gather here as a church. Uh, But today, um, what I want us to do is spend time looking at how uh, those truths, which I am going to assume without proving exegetically, assume that we all believe and affirm together, how we can see the preservation of God's word up into today. Because as we've been talking about in our uh, last few Sunday school lessons in the adult time, um, we have been looking at an apologetics and polemics in defending our faith. And and so this is a very, very key and important aspect of defending our faith. Uh, The world in which we live today, uh, if you talk to atheists, of course, many of them, I remember sitting sitting uh, uh, around a fire about midnight and there was in Kenya and there was a group of people and we had all we were out, out there camping and um, uh, there was this older lady an older British lady and she knew that we were Christians and she's like well you guys know that the Bible was created by Constantine right I mean he's the one that created the Bible so you guys are just following this Roman emperor from a couple hundred years after Jesus. And so it's kind of silly for you to do that. And I remember at the time I was like, well, I know that's not right, but I don't really know what to say. (laughs) And so I, I forget exactly how we had that discussion, but I just remember at that time thinking, I really don't want to be, uh, caught with my guard down again, especially with talking to many Muslims, uh, Muslims all the time, their favorite thing in the world is to say, yeah, that's nice, but you know your Bible is corrupted, so whatever you say, whatever Bible verse you go to, I, I don't really care what it says because your Bible is just riddled with corruptions. And so being able to say, really, why do you think that? And being able to have a, a reasonable and historical and logical conversation with them on the Yes, the inspiration of the scriptures, having a good understanding of these texts and being able to um, <clears throat> clearly teach them, incredibly important. And that is really the primary place in, that we always want to start. Uh, 
But then secondarily, I think it is also good to then walk into history and to see how God has continued to preserve the scriptures and how God has um, brought us from 2,000 years ago, the time of Christ, and even before them with the Old Testament scriptures uh, up to today and understanding how we have uh, gotten the Bible that we have today. Uh, No, the Bible is not just a man-made book. No, the Bible was not created by Constantine at the Council of Nicaea, and we talked about that several weeks ago. Um, But how is it that we have our Bible here today? Was King James the first to do it? Or what does that process look like? And so I want to spend some time then for us to have a, uh, I hope we all have a confidence in the scriptures and the word of God that we hold in our hands, but I hope that the time today would be used for bolstering that confidence and giving more, uh, more credence to that belief that we have that this is indeed the inspired word of God given to us. And so to do so, if you have your notes from Sunday school that we've been using, on page number six, that's kind of the outline that I'm going to be following, page number six of your notes that we've been using uh, for Sunday school, uh, under the heading, Defending the Scriptures. And so the first place in which we must talk, we must discuss, is that of biblical manuscripts. What are the biblical manuscripts? Now, a manuscript is any handwritten copy of a portion of the text of the Bible. So prior to Gutenberg's press, there was no copying machine. You can't just go Xerox something. You can't go throw something down on the copier. If you want a copy of anything, you're going to have to do it by hand. And if you're related to a Wormley, you're in trouble because you're not going to be able to read it. So biblical manuscripts is just any copy. And at that time, it would have been a handwritten copy of... The Bible. Now, a manuscript can be anywhere from a small fragment to an entire book of the Bible or multiple books of the Bible. It's just merely a copy of the text of Scripture. And so these manuscripts would vary in sizes. Um, again, some of them would just be a, a single verse, you know, if they, as we discover them, you know, having been destroyed and uh, hurt over time, uh, whereas some are kept in pristine condition. But all of them are considered manuscripts and are given names and cataloged and scholars use different sources um, to uh, uh, catalog these and and to keep them. Um, You know, as Christians, uh, one of the things that is very different about Islam and Christianity, as Christians, we want to look at all of our manuscripts. We want to look at all of the evidence which we have, Uh, whereas with many of our Muslim friends, they do not want to do that. They do not want all of their chronic manuscripts categorized and put in a catalog because of discrepancies and problems. But as Christians, we, we, as we discover, as we have been able and been blessed to have a large and vast quantity of biblical manuscripts throughout history, we are able to look at these and to compare them to one another. And so these manuscripts, then, there's different kinds of manuscripts. A manuscript being, in your mind, a copy, a handwritten copy of a portion of the scriptures. <clears throat> now, there's many types of manuscripts. Uh, the oldest ones are papyrus, which was a, uh, a, a paper that was created um, mainly back in Egypt and made from the stem of a papyrus plant. And so uh, written on these are some of the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament that we have. 
Uh, we have uncials, which are written in all capitals. So, you know, just think you put on cap locks and then you just start typing. Uh, no spaces. It's just, it's just all right there for you. And so uh, there are many of these uncial manuscripts. There's mincial, uh, minuscules, excuse me, uh, manuscripts. And uh, there's a whole textual history that goes around this. But we're not going to spend time on that because it is not incredibly important and it is very dry and boring. So we're not going to get much into all of these different manuscript types. But just so you know that the way in which the, the paper and the way in which it was written throughout time uh, has changed, but the words, <laughs> the words are all still there. And so you have different parchment, you have different ways in which the writing was done, and all of these things help us understand uh, the historical evidence of uh, when we categorize when things were written, how old they are, and so on. So, that's just a brief little understanding of what is there in your notes. Point A, what are biblical manuscripts? Well, it's just a copy of the Bible that has been written down. <clears throat> now, the more interesting and important question to you and I then is B, letter B there, how many manuscripts? How many manuscripts do we have of the New Testament? In particular, we're going to focus on the New Testament because most often it is the New Testament that comes uh, under attack, under fire in these discussions. So, how many manuscripts do we have? How do we know that the New Testament we have today is the same New Testament that was around the year 100 AD? How do we know that the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians are actually the words of Apostle Paul in Ephesians? Can we be certain? Should we be certain? Well, <clears throat> there are approximately 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Approximately 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. In addition, uh, depending on where your cutoff date is, there's over 10,000 Latin manuscripts, many of them being ancient, uh, ancient Latin, uh, over 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and then over 9,300 ancient, uh, other ancient languages uh, were manuscripts. So you have like Armenian and Ge'ez and uh, Aramaic and Syriac and Coptic and these other languages. So, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> 5,800 plus Greek, 10,000 plus Latin, 9,300 plus other language uh, manuscripts that are out there. Now, we know and we recognize as Christians that when the Apostle Paul penned his letter to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Philippi, and he sent those letters out, uh, we know that we don't have the autographed version of the Apostle Paul's letter. We don't have the autographed version of the Gospel of Matthew. But what we do have is hundreds and thousands of copies of those letters. <coughs> now, we have around 50 manuscripts that can be dated within 250 to 300 years of the original. And we have several full-length copies of the entire New Testament, uh, found in the around the third and fourth century, we have many old um, uh, smaller portions like uh, P52, as it is called, Papyrus 52, um, and containing uh, portion of the the Gospel of John, and and so we have uh, many copies, many old and ancient copies of the New Testament that we are able to look at, and if you remember the time of 
uh, the time of the early church in the book of Acts was not a time when Christianity was the popular you know, religion, the thing to do. No, there was, you know, we see uh, James being beheaded. We see Paul and Silas going to jail. We see a lot of problems there in the early church. <clears throat> Up until uh, 313, um, Christianity was technically not a legal uh, religion for people to practice. Uh, it wasn't that for all of those 300 years, it was just nonstop persecution. There was periods of times and in certain places where it was worse and sometimes when it was better. Uh, but Christianity as a whole was not an accepted uh, religion uh, within the first 300 years of the Roman Empire in which it was spreading rapidly. And so uh, many of these copies, uh, you know, you have a church in Ephesus that desires to hear the word that was written to the church at Corinth and hear the word that was written to the church at Philippi and these letters are being spread around and copies are being made and they're being sent to these various places geographically speaking. These letters are being spread in various languages and so the transmission of the New Testament starts with an apostle writing a letter to a particular person in the case of Timothy or to a particular church in the case of many of the other letters or uh, just in general uh, like some of the Gospels. And so you have these letters being written, but those letters are being continually copied and spread and sent to various places, other churches that are wanting to hear uh, these writings that had been given <clears throat> by the apostles and those who were traveling with the apostles. And so the scriptures are being spread all throughout the Roman Empire. And we have a lot of data on that spreading. We have a lot of the actual copies that happened during that time. And even if we didn't have the manuscripts, even if we were to burn all of those 5,800 Greek and 10,000 Latin and 9,300 of the other languages, we still have the early church fathers who loved to quote the scripture. And we could, uh, we could take just the first uh, uh, few centuries of early church history and we could reconstruct the entire New Testament just from their writings. I always find it fascinating uh, that you can do that because, you know, if you had the choice of saying like, well, check out Leviticus 3 through 4, <laughs> you know, chapter 3 through 4, I think I would say that. I wouldn't write it all out, but they did. <laughs> they wrote a lot of scripture out. And so we have the testimony of the early church on top of all of the textual uh, history that we have of the spread of these manuscripts. <clears throat> Even a harsh critic of the Bible like Bart Ehrman, if you know Bart Ehrman, he is no fan of Christianity and he's no fan of uh, even the Bible uh, for that matter. Uh, but Bart Ehrman says concerning the early church fathers that so extensive are these citations that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. And so the point being, looking at how many manuscripts we have, the point is to say we have a lot. There are more manuscripts of the New Testament than of any other ancient document by far. It is not even close. There's a huge, 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 um, I don't know if I can stress that enough, huge uh, amount of uh, biblical texts that affirm the scriptures. <clears throat> now, that's good. That's nice that we have a lot of copies. But the question then becomes, as we move on to C, point C there, 
How do biblical manuscripts compare to other ancient works? <coughs> How do biblical manuscripts compare to other ancient um, books that you might read or uh, come across? Is it about the same um, when it comes to how far they were written, after, how late they were written after the event and so on? Uh, how do biblical manuscripts compare to other things? Well, a few examples to give here. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with, maybe have even read, uh, Homer, the great poet, uh, his uh, Iliad and Odyssey, which was originally written in the 8th century before Christ, so around 800 years before Jesus was born. And there's a few fragments of the Iliad in particular that can be dated within 500 years of that time. Maybe from before the time of Christ, a few fragments that are about 500 years after the fact. So the first complete copy we have of the Iliad comes from uh, about the 10th century. It's a medieval manuscript. So the first complete copy we have of the Iliad is about 1,800 years after the Iliad was written. That's a huge time gap between when the Iliad was written and when we have the first full complete manuscript, 1,800 years for the first full copy of the Iliad. Uh, similar uh, for the Odyssey, um, there's several other uh, Tacitus and several others that uh, we could go into, uh, but just one more I want to talk about is that of uh, Alexander the Great, who was the king, of course, of uh, ancient Greece and coming from the kingdom of Macedonia. So Alexander the Great, we'll try to maybe make this one a little bit more uh, practical for us, <clears throat> He was born in 356 BC. He succeeded his father, Philip II, to the throne, and he was around the age of 20. Most of his life, even though it was short, he was spent you know, fighting and conquering what would become the Greek Empire. And he died at the age of 33. He, with his military might, created one of the largest empires in the ancient world, spreading from Greece to Egypt into India. And he was practically undefeated in battle, and he is considered one of the history's. He is considered as one of history's most successful military strategists. Now, I don't know how many of you enjoy that type of uh, reading, wars and generals and all that type of stuff. But maybe there's a few of you out here, and maybe some of you remember back from uh, a history class, like, oh yeah, I remember some of those things are true. But how do we know all of those facts about Alexander the Great are true? Have you ever done any historical, textual, critical research on the documents? on the life of Alexander the Great? How do we know that all of these facts that I read that would be accepted by a majority of scholars today, how do we know that those things are all true? How do we know it's right? Well, let's consider some of his resources. <clears throat> the problem with Alexander the Great, well, it's not really a problem, but there are very few documents, especially compared to uh, the New Testament, but the histories of Alexander the Great uh, in Latin, I'm not going to pronounce the name because I have not yet studied Latin, uh, is one of the only surviving extant Latin biographies of Alexander the Great. It's called the Histories of Alexander the Great. It was written by the Roman historian Quintus Curtius Rufus in the first century AD. But the earliest surviving manuscript comes from the ninth century. So historically, we know that Rufus wrote this in the first century, but the first time we actually have a copy of his writing is from the ninth century. 
So Alexander the Great, who died in 322 BC, someone wrote about him about 400 years later, but we don't actually have a copy of that guy's writing until about the 9th century. So the earliest biography was written by someone who lived almost 500 years after Alexander the Great. And the oldest manuscript we have is about 1,100 years after the death of Alexander the Great. So looking at the Christian manuscripts of the New Testament, we don't just have one manuscript that comes 1,100 years after the time of Christ. Rather, we have dozens and dozens of scriptures that come within the first, uh, some even within 30 years, believed to be within the time of uh, after the time of Christ, up to 200 years around, in that time frame, around 250 to 300 manuscripts. And so there is a huge quantity of manuscripts, yes, but there's also a close proximity to the events of the New Testament when we, uh, with the evidence that we have um, today that we are able to look at. So when we compare the biblical manuscripts to other ancient works, not only are there vastly more manuscripts, but they are vastly superior in the sense that they are very close, closer than any other historical um, author or writing. And so the manuscripts are many and they are old, which is good. Then moving on to D, how was the New Testament transmitted throughout history? Well, We've talked about this briefly, but the letters of the apostle, again, were sent to various churches uh, that, you know, that were being planted, these different house churches, and the letters are being passed around. They're going to different places. They're going to different uh, peoples and different churches and different languages, and they are being copied and transmitted. The, the biblical manuscripts were spreading across the globe in multiple languages. And for the Christian, this is so important because there was never a time when someone was like, I want all the New Testament. Uh, sorry, people looked up at me like, oh. <laughs> I wasn't snapping because you're not paying attention, okay? <laughs> but maybe you should. No, it's good. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm going to get in trouble. Um, the, there was never a time when someone was, let's say, like the Pope and was able to say, bring me all the New Testament manuscripts. I want them all right now, and I am going to decide what is going on in the Bible. Not even at the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, did that happen. They weren't even talking about the Bible. They're talking about the Arian controversy. We've already discussed that. But that was never the case that there was a time in Christianity when one person who had all the manuscripts was able to say, bring me them, and I'm going to decide. The Bible, the manuscripts of the New Testament are being spread all over the globe in many different languages. There was no central power that had control over them. Whereas when you look at Islamic history, you look at the third caliph, Uthman, he commissions Zaid ibn Thabit to go and collect all of the Quranic manuscripts. And Zaid ibn Thabit says, if he would have asked me to move a mountain, it would have been easier. It was very hard for him to track down the Quran. And they're having problems with the Quran. And so he sends out Zaid ibn Thabit. And finally, when he collects all the manuscripts, they say, listen, this is now the text of the Quran. And do you know what they do with all of the other Quranic manuscripts that they had gathered? They, they burn them. They burn all of their oldest manuscripts. And that happened almost 20 years after the life of Muhammad. There's never a time where that happened for Christians. There's never a time where we gathered up everything and burned a bunch of it because we were having problems. 
as Christians were able to gather all of these manuscripts that were done on their own many years ago. And what we can do is we can compare all of these Latin translations, all of these Greek translations, all of these uh, other uh, various languages, and we can look at them and we can go back and we can say, do we know what was written by the original autographs? And as Craig Bloomberg, a New Testament scholar, he writes, only about a tenth of 1% of the variations are interesting enough to make their way into footnotes in most English translations. Even the atheist, again, Bart Ehrman says, in his appendix to the paperback edition of his book, Misquoting Jesus, that the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. So, as a Christian, what we must understand is when you're copying anything, when any human is copying anything whatsoever, especially me, as Mrs. Williams remembers, <laughs> you're going to make mistakes. You're going to write words wrong. You're going to misspell things, sometimes your own name. <laughs> not pointing any fingers, but um, you're going you're to make mistakes. So if you have 500 copies of the book of John, and in it you read in a certain passage, um, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And you have... 499 of them saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word, well, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And one of those, one of those says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was Gus, and, and wait, wait, whoa, 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 what, what's going on here? <laughs> There's a different word, what's going on? The point being, we have a vast array of texts in which we are able to look and see what is it that was originally written? And if there was some sort of uh, scribal error, even if it was done on purpose, we have such a vast array of texts that we are able to look back and say, okay, yeah, we see, we see how maybe the person accidentally wrote Gus there instead of God, and I don't know why, but we, we get it. And so we're able to do that because of the large quantity of texts. Now, one of the things that... <clears throat> People who are critical to the New Testament will try to say, as well, look at all the, the, the variants. There's a lot of variants out there. Well, the reason that you have variants, many of them being, uh, and even guys like Bart Ehrman who are against Christianity, will admit that, yeah, basically all, practically all, like Blum, uh, Bloomberg said, a tenth of 1%, which is 0.01%, 0.001, one of those, um, very, very, very small percent actually do anything, but none of them affect any biblical doctrines. But the reason that there are so many variants, let's say, uh, is because there are so many biblical manuscripts. If we only had one copy of the New Testament, only one copy of the New Testament, there would be zero variants because there's nothing to compare it to. But would only one copy be sufficient? What would be better to have a large, vast array of biblical te texts from different time periods and in different geographical locations in different languages to compare and show the uh, consistency and truthfulness of the scriptures or just having one. Now, the reason, uh, and, and, and furthermore, all those variants, most of them, um, as you can read in many different books, <laughs> but most of those are like the movable new, uh, which is in the Greek uh, it, it would be somewhat similar to um, like a and an. So you're supposed to say an apple, right? Right? Right. Okay, good. <laughs> you're supposed to say an apple. You're not supposed to say a apple. 
And in Greek, there's something similar with a movable new. You can, you can either have the, the in there, let's say, or you can get rid of it. But it doesn't really matter. It doesn't, it's not, it's not that important. And so there's, many of those are a movable new, where it's a grammatical thing that doesn't even matter, uh, unless you're an English teacher or a Greek teacher. Or the spelling of like John. Sometimes uh, the authors will write Johanna as having uh, two N's in his name or one. And, and so many of them are just simple little things like that. But as faithful and honest Christian scholars, note every single one of these. But as can be attested by even non-Christians, no biblical doctrine is in any way affected through any type of variant. So that all being said, what does the internal evidence tell us? Uh, the last point there, I believe, E. What does the internal evidence tell us? Well, it tells us that the scriptures have been faithfully preserved down through history. As Christians, we can have confidence that the Bible that you hold today, the Bible which tells us that it is inspired by God, that it has been given to us by men, apostles and prophets, who were used by God, who spoke according to the Spirit's desire, that those men, as they wrote and copied down their letters and the promises that are given, which affirm that the Scriptures will continue, that the Scriptures will indeed be preserved, we can see that that has indeed happened throughout time and history. And we can see it in the many manuscripts, in the early manuscripts, in the uh, uh, the majority of manuscripts. And so uh, this should be something that is a uh, confidence booster for the Christian, I guess, when it comes to thinking about the scriptures. So in brief summary then, on F there, <coughs> four points. Brief summary. One Point number one, there are more manuscripts for the New Testament than any other ancient literature. There are more manuscripts for the New Testament than any other ancient book, writing, piece of literature, maybe I should have said. Number two, there is earlier attestation of the New Testament than any other ancient writing. There is earlier attestation for the New Testament than any other ancient writing. Number three, the ability to cross-reference these manuscripts and see the unity of the message of the Bible. The ability, the ability to cross-reference these manuscripts and see the unity of the message of the Bible. This is important because we, we want to be able to do that. We don't want to burn our manuscripts. We want to look at all of them and say, hey, we can see that this was written in Ge'ez and Latin and Greek and all of these other languages, and we can see that it's saying the same thing. We can have a confidence that because of this ability to cross-reference all of these manuscripts, that we indeed have the truthful and original writing of the apostles and prophets. And lastly, number four, <clears throat> the fact that there was no central governing body that controlled all of the New Testament documents. The fact that there was no central governing body that controlled all of the New Testament documents. I feel like these are all run-on, fragment, some type of sentences that need work, so tweak them, you tweak them. But this is, again, another important sum, summarizing statement that we've looked at, that there was no central government, there's no, no Council of Nicaea, there's no Nicaea, no, none of that where 
the Bible was decided upon. That is not how the manuscripts were transmitted. That's not how the Bible that we have today was given. We have men who um, looked at the, Old Te- the, the New Testament documents and the Old Testament documents, and they took them and they translated them from Greek and from Hebrew into English. And different men who did the same for French and for German and for all of these various languages, for Swahili and Somali, looking at these original, uh, the original languages and the manuscripts that we have there. And from there, we translate it over into the New Testament. And so, just a brief note on translation, because sometimes people will say, well, what about... What about you guys and your translations? Because some people have the King James, some people have the ESV, and what's going on here? Well, when you translate from one language into another, it is nev- you're never able to do that um, you know, to a one-to-one ratio. It's not possible to do it at a, for a one-to-one ratio. And an example I always give is when I was first learning Swahili, I was, I was getting there. I, I kind of knew what was going on, but I still had an interpreter. And so I was asking the class, I said, all right, guys, I have an easy question for you. And my interpreter uh, said, uh, he said he has a vegetable question for you. And I was like, I know mboga. I know that word means vegetable, and that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> so I stopped, and I was like, whoa, what, what are you doing? What's going on? <laughs> Preaching heresy over here? And everyone was laughing because in Kenyan culture, culture, uh, the word mboga, vegetable, it means easy or simple. It also means vegetable, but it a lot of times is used uh, colloquially. Oh boy, it's a big word to say <laughs> at noon. Um, uh, it's used to say, you know, anyone can go out and buy vegetables. Like that's, that's a simple thing to do. Uh, even if you're super poor, you can go buy a few vegetables. And so it's easy, it's simple. And, and so a lot of times they interchange mboga for ricey, and it's just another way of saying it. And that's all he was doing. So when you come to these type of things in the Old Testament and in the New Testament where you have these um, various words, do you translate it literally? If you were to come across that, let's say that was in the Old Testament Hebrew in one of these uh, poetic uh, uh, writings, um, and you read, and the Lord had a vegetable question. Well, now the translator has to ask the question, am I going to say it literally? Or am I going to say, well, this is what he's actually meaning. And so some of your more literal translations will just say vegetable questions, and your more um, wanting to be helpful translations will say, well, this is what he means. He means easy. And, you know, people can get upset because, well, why did you change the Bible? So, but that's a whole other discussion. Uh, the point is we have the manuscripts, the Old and the New Testament manuscripts, that tell us what was said. And then it just becomes a matter of how do we want to communicate that uh, in the language? Do we want to make it slightly more easy? Do we want to make it more stringent and and, uh, rigid uh, in translation? Uh, But that's a whole other thing. So uh, we're going to end there with uh, that understanding. But I hope that this is uh, encouraging. I know that a lot of times when you start talking talking about manuscripts and you talk about papyrus and you talk about transmission of biblical texts and textual criticism... It is easy for the eyes to glaze over. And, um, but I think that this is, again, incredibly important for us to have a, some, uh, a, a, a somewhat um, cohesive understanding of how God has preserved his word up to today. And, of course, the most important place is to start in those exegetical uh, 
looking at all of those scriptures that we looked at, to spend time really digging into those and seeing the promises that God has made. Uh, this is just more so looking how God has continued to uh, continue to preserve his word and preserve those promises which he has given to us. So, next Sunday morning, there will be an expositional sermon. There will not be a homily on biblical transmission, so you can be thankful for that. But I hope that it has been a blessing and will be used by you in your discussions with friends, co-workers in the years, weeks, days to come. So with that, we're going to close.